Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cole. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we think about issues of international reputation, foreign policy, and a few other things along the way. And today, we're not thinking about the reputation of nations, but rather about the reputation of groupings of people that cross national boundaries. So transnational groupings, things like religions and ethnicities. And so to start the ball rolling, uh, Simon, how do you see um, transnational groupings like, say, religions figuring in uh, your observation of the reputation of nations? How do those how do those two fit together? Well, in some cases, they fit together very closely. In other cases, they're barely relevant. Um, But if we look at, for example, perceptions of predominantly Muslim countries on the part of people in predominantly non-Muslim countries, the fact of the religion is a very significant part of the perception of the country. So if you ask a, if you ask a, um, a Christian person in Canada, what are their positions, what's their position or their perceptions of, uh, say, Morocco, uh, the chances mm-hmm. are that will be heavily influenced by their perceptions of Islam, um, because probably one of the very few things they know about Morocco is that it's a predominantly Islamic country. And that's one of many, many examples. You could operate the same one in reverse. A typical person in the street in Morocco, their view of Canada may well be influenced by what they perceive to be the nature of uh, Christianity, Judaism, or however else they believe the Canadian population is made up. So there's often a very strong, often almost perfect overlap. But I think the reason why the topic is of interest to us and the reason why we find it so fascinating is because people very clearly do respond to other groupings of people in rather similar psychological um, manners to the way that they perceive of of nation states. And in fact, image is as much of a problem for religions and other transnational groupings as it is for countries. It gets in their way in just the same degree. And people's perceptions of Catholicism or their perceptions of Judaism or their perceptions of Hinduism, for example, are just as important to the the progress um, that those religions make in society as perceptions of country. Mm -hmm. So the way that that I come at this is by thinking, uh, looking at the origins of attempts at national reputation management. And one of the first things that nation states have done historically is to associate themselves with the um, transnational religion. So I'm thinking about the uh, Francis I of France, who called himself Rata Chrétien, the very Christian king, um, thinking about when um, Egypt was was getting going in the 1950s, uh, NASA um, began broadcasting the Quran and uh, aligning the regime with um, international Islam as a way of, of showing moral value of the nation state and, I guess, making a claim to transnational leadership uh, on, on behalf of people who were not within the nation state, that their own nation state, but rather uh, elsewhere in their region. So looking on the religion as kind of a, a, a thing that would be accepted as a legitimate moral good and aligning the country with that. 
so it it it's interesting to think of a, a situation where religions are actually a bad thing to be uh, associated or a damaging thing for the reputation because so historically it's it's worked or it's been um, uh, claimed in the in the other direction. Yes, well, it's a, it's a, it's a divisive technique, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, yes, it's a it's a calling card. So if you identify yourself. Um, as a as a nation state committed to a particular religion, then there's a chance that you will gain immediate favor with other nations around the world who who subscribe to the same religion. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, you're likely to make an enemy of the countries that don't. So these days, on the whole, quite a large number of countries think it's safe or not mm-hmm. and don't associate themselves with religion. No, I guess it was part of Franco's Spain too, where you know really emphasized. It, it's uh, Catholicism as part of its internal and uh, external display of, of morality, and some things came built onto that, like anti-communism and uh, so forth. Uh, have you got examples of it of it going wrong, or countries trying to distance themselves from their religion? Well, I think I think most Western countries these days try to do that most of the time, don't they? They um... They're very, they're very anxious to communicate a sense of wide tolerance and pluralism, um, and I suppose this is a um, this is a characteristic of our of our, our modern globalized age that mm-hmm. um, the audience, in heavy inverted commas, that a country might wish to appeal to or remain in good favour with, is simply much broader than it was in previous periods of history, and whereas your your European, your early European nation states really only wanted to be friends with a handful of similar powers. Today, you want to be friends with as many other countries as you possibly can. And mm-hmm. the safest way to do that um, is to, to push your tolerance, to push your acceptance, to, uh, to push the multifaceted nature of your, of your country and its, and its belief systems. But there are countries that couldn't do that even if they wanted to. I mean, um, you, you have a country like, for example, Saudi Arabia, which if it didn't position itself as being uh, predominantly uh, Muslim, um, well, it's, it's unthinkable in the case of Saudi Arabia, because, of course, it's the, it's the kingdom of the, two, of the two holy shrines. And so it would be letting down the leadership in the Muslim world that it has inherited mm-hmm. um, and which uh, is expected of. So it's a very mixed picture, but broadly speaking, in the West, I think the tendency is to go in the other direction. Yes, and it, I, uh, one way place we've seen this is with Poland, where mm-hmm. national identity and, and religious experience are still uh, closely aligned, uh, and I think that that's been a um, something of a stumbling block between Poland and the rest of the European Union. Do you remember there, uh, the Polish government's attempt to get God mentioned in the European constitution and uh, th- things like th- this that really make Poland not look like a leader of Europe, but rather like an outlier um, that's still talking about or in terms that uh, the mainstream of European politics has put some distance um, from? Yes. Absolutely. Well, it's it's classic non-aligned behaviour, isn't it? They take a the, the government of the time takes a long, hard look at the the values that characterise other governments that they might want to to please or impress, and judges that the majority of them are indeed Christian or predominantly Catholic, and says this will please them, and those are the people we want to please, and we don't care about anybody mm-hmm. else. In fact, it's um, very much um, the the aim of 
of these rather difficult governments to try to displease as many countries as they please. Right. So what about other than religion? What what other groupings are out there? We um, Ethnicities? Which, which are the major ones that you see? Well, there are all kinds of really fascinating categories out there when you start to think about it. For example, indigenous peoples. That's who, true, yes. Who uh, ethnically, linguistically, historically may have absolutely nothing in common with each other, apart from the fact um, that they were there before the um, before the, the dominant population arrived. And that gives them common cause, even if it doesn't give them common cultural identity. And so that, in a sense, is a much more overtly political uh, type of, of collection of people. Nonetheless, a, an interesting one, um, a laudable one in many senses. Laudable because what it does uh, is that by linking transnationally, it gives those small and typically rather powerless groups uh, the ability to wield a slightly bigger stick and to get invited to international meetings and to start to have a collective voice. So absolutely, you know, when you when you see Maoris and Inuits, Inuits sitting down together at the same international institution or on the fringes of a UN meeting, you see mm-hmm. you see the power of that common cause. That's that's one I find particularly interesting, and it and it, it goes further. Small island nations who have nothing in common except the fact that their nation is a small island, but again, their ability to connect and form groups and form common cause with other countries facing similar challenges, in this case particularly climate change, it gives more power to their collective elbow and enables them to have a louder voice. So there's there's much to be gained by uh, by these groupings coming together. No, I think that you, especially with the indigenous communities, it's possible to see how they're learning from one another, empowering each other, that there are more and more forums coming into existence for for indigenous groups and uh, their communications have really taken off in, in um, social media. I think because they were so excluded from legacy media, they only had that those forum to, uh, forums to use. So, um, you know, the, the, we, we've seen a, a real expansion of communication and assistance between groups for better communication with, with uh, indigenous communities. So now it's possible to talk of global indigenous public diplomacy in a way that wouldn't have really made much sense um, 10, 15 years ago. Yes. Well, it's, it's, part, it's part of that very old and at the same time particularly new human traits that more than ever before we all want to belong to something and the yes. group to which you belong is the fundamental point um yes and sometimes this can be utterly exasperating because it's pushed to hysterical levels where the role of the individual becomes quite often completely forgotten but looked at through this perspective you can perhaps begin to understand why it's become so common because we live in a globalized interconnected world it is so very difficult for individuals and small groups to just get themselves heard and to make a difference in the world and to fight for their rights. And so these kinds of uh, clusterings, this this constant formation of tribes upon tribes upon tribes, it is also a way of achieving power and a way of achieving voice. And it's one of the reasons why it's become such a classic phenomenon of the 21st century. I think it's very interesting that um, there's no sense that the rights of an Inuit are diminished by the assertion of, of, of rights of a Maori, whereas with nation states, sometimes there's there's more of a zero sum game where um, you know the, the each nation wants to assert itself only, and there's less 
uh, altruism, less of a sense of uh, of a whole category of nations that need uh, to be benefited or need that need benefit, need yeah. support. I think you're absolutely right, Nick, and I think it's a very interesting point because the culture of nations, the culture of the international community as a community of nations, is and always has been a culture of contest, of the 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 effort to achieve ascendancy one over the other, the idea that life on Earth is a constant contest between nation states, and that idea simply doesn't apply to indigenous people who, by all the old rules, have nothing to do with each other and were never connected and probably barely realized each other's existence. So that element of competition being in the nature of the game for those communities just is just absent. Religions, on the other hand, are just like nation states in the sense that the majority of them uh, do configure themselves globally as part of a competition. Certainly the proselytizing religions do. And all this mm-hmm. Not all religions are proselytizing. Nonetheless, the rules of the game for the world's religions is broadly a rule of contest. And that's a shame, isn't it? And, <laughs> and is perhaps part of the, of the cause of the problem in the first place. Where, where would ethnicities fall? I was thinking about how ethnicities have served as a kind of a, a transnational touchstone. And an example of that would be following the first post-colonial states uh, getting their independence in Africa, uh, how the leaders of the the first states, the statesmen like, say, Kwame Nkrumah, would appeal to a pan-African identity as a way of advancing the interests of their state, of their region. And you can see how there's still, I think, uh, a a sense of a global African identity, uh, a black Atlantic connecting uh, peoples originating in Africa, uh, from the uh, you know uh, Americas, Caribbean, uh, Europe back to uh, Africa, I think you can see global Chinese identities, global Indian identities, but those are more owned by nation states than than the transnational African identity. That's absolutely right, and uh, um, perhaps one or other of our listeners can come back to us on this. But off the off the top of my head, I can't see any global brotherhood or sisterhood that comes anywhere near to that of Africans and descendants of Africans. The others, as you rightly say, they're all dictated as much by nationality as by ethnicity, if not more. Right. Um, I mean, you do hear talk increasingly in the US, um, a sense of, or perhaps a desire for brotherhood and sisterhood amongst so-called, in heavy quotes, brown people as well as black people. And it mm-hmm. seems to be that there's a desire there for, the, for, for there to be a sense of belonging or commonality between people of South Asian origin. But mm-hmm. it's it's pretty weak compared to compared to um, the the African and post-African one we were talking about before. I wonder, do you think that's something that's emerging or is it is it a uh, experiment? Well, I, I, uh, my, my suspicion is that you'll that we're seeing p- political diversity emerging in those communities and there's many reasons for people to have different interests from one another than the same interest but well it's still still un- unclear and i think that the present moment is probably not not a um one that will continue that it has unique unique features by that i mean that the democrats cannot assume indefinitely that all peoples of of color or all ethnic minorities will 
belong to that party. Uh, that's already not the case. And I, I'm sure we'll see much greater political diversity um, among uh, uh, Americans, ethnic minorities. And I'm not sure that the attempt to rally around a, a an inclusive brand of people of color will 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 work because of the awareness within those communities of contradictory and diverging interest. Yes, socioeconomic interests apart from anything. Yes, else. absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, it's I mean, just if you like, even within the Hispanic community, you have tremendous differences uh, between the between the different communities. The most obvious being the politics of uh, Cuban Americans uh, is so different from that of uh, Americans of Mexican origin. Yes, and fact, uh, the, the whole the whole idea of of categorizing people's political leanings according to their race. Is perilously close to racist, isn't it? Yes, and and sometimes when politicians talk that way, they get called out exactly on on that, and taking uh, um, groups for granted. I, I wonder, you know, it, it's interesting to see transnational conversations taking place between people with disabilities, and that is something that we're now. Uh, seeing happening culturally, uh, you know, through international cultural organisations and through pressure groups, and I, I think that's a very positive, very positive change. Uh, I was looking at it uh, recently, and it, it's amazing how human rights laws uh, around the world haven't really paid much attention to disability as a category until quite recently. Uh, it, it's sort of emerging as an area of contact. And, you know, I'm very glad to see it. Much driven by sport as well, I presume. Absolutely. Maybe sport's the part where people are, um, you know, most uh, most open to inclusion. Yeah. What about countries that are are actually seeking... So to go back to religion, Hmm. I'm thinking about the religions themselves attempting to manage their image. And I'm just back from Rome. Lots of evidence in Rome of the way in which the Vatican sought to reinvigorate its image 500 years ago, and it kind of doubled down on the theatre of religion, on the splendour of faith, and uh, the um, amazing uh, Baroque churches are, are designed as a mechanism for communicating something powerful to uh, believers and I think non-believers too that to say you know this is the this is something unique and important uh, some so you could maybe think of that as being a, a an attempt at branding rebranding reinvigorating a uh, a religion in the face of challenges from other other faiths if you call it reformation or the need to um, that they saw to proselytize in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and so forth. You know, obviously they saw themselves at a at a turning point. Are there other examples today of religions organizing to put a best face forward and brand, rebrand themselves? Yeah, uh, I don't know um, because no religion has ever come to me and asked them to uh, and asked me to to give them advice on. On their image, it would be a fascinating um, question, but I don't think that means it's not happening. I'm certain it is happening. It's almost unthinkable um, that uh, a the leaders of the major religions are not aware of the fact 
that their image is terribly, terribly important to them amongst uh, believers and non-believers alike. And B, it's therefore in, in, inconceivable that they're not trying to do something about it. Probably they do just what the majority of countries do um, when they realize that they might have an image problem. They call in some bloody PR agency and say, you know, here's a fistful of dollars. Now see, what, see, if you can, uh, see if you can persuade the media to say nicer things about us. And if that is what they do, then it's a pity because the problem is actually of, my, of a much higher order than that and, and really um, much more interesting than that. And potentially, if this kind of stuff were handled well, it could be tremendously important. I mean, just imagine if you took the image of Judaism or the image mm -hmm. of Islam or the image of Christianity or, 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 or any other major religion and you looked at how negative that image is to people from other religions and other parts of the world and what a lot of problems that causes mm -hmm. that misunderstanding that enmity that mistrust that suspicion and if there really was a way that these religions could get their act together and try and combat that if that's not too bellicose a word for it to break right. it down to be better understood to represent themselves more fairly to engage in dialogue with other religions more than they do. What an amazing thing that would be. And I know they all so, so talk about just it. Just to draw you out here, what you're saying is that what if the problem is not the image of a particular religion, but mm. the image of religions in general, and mm. might not all religions benefit from being in dialogue with each other and collectively start to reposition the image of the spiritual in the modern age. Yeah, absolutely. Because the problem... I agree. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I have seen that attempted locally where you have a local interfaith network. And it, it always struck me, uh, I lived in, in Leicester, where there was a, a, a very strong culture of the leaders of individual uh, religious groups connecting to each other and having a dialogue. I think that they all benefited from that dialogue. There was something that they were able to deliver back to their own communities was their ability to be in dialogue with other with other other communities. So I'm certain it was good for their image. I'm also certain it was good for the for the city. And it, uh, so I felt positively about seeing that. Imagining that at a, at a global level would be positive. And I, I know that there was a one nation state attempted to have a, a kind of a congress of religions, and that was, um, was one of the pet projects of Kazakhstan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, maybe about 10 years ago that they tried to, uh, and they've maybe had two um, congresses since, but perhaps it has to happen not through a nation state, but at a at a um, a more uh, transnational level than that. Yes, I may I may have had something to do with that. Um, the um, the point about religions, of course, is that this is a sweeping generalization, of course. But um, religious leaders are, on the whole, these days, I think, better respected than political leaders as a whole worldwide. Mm -hmm. Um, people tend to trust their own religious leaders probably more than they trust their own politicians, especially in democratic societies. And so the impact of seeing your 
faith leaders sitting down together in the same room, leaders of other faiths, is bound to be a good thing. It's bound to, to, to make people think better thoughts. And we do see it all the time. I mean, every time there's a, there's a climate change conference, for example, uh, we saw it at COP, there's always going to be at least one session where you see a row of religious leaders from half a dozen different religions all sitting down together. Mm -hmm. And that, even just that, even if they don't agree anything, just that is good, just the fact of seeing it. Because the followers of each of those faiths will see their leader sitting down um, in a friendly way uh, next to the leaders of other faiths and they'll think, ah, oh, that's what I should be doing. So anything like that that reduces this sense of contest between religions is undoubtedly a good thing. But they need to do more. And I think the bottom line here, when we're talking about religions, is that um, religions in one way or another um, control the hearts and minds and behaviours of people in a way that politicians really don't anymore. No. Therefore, when we're talking about facing up to grand challenges uh, like, like climate change, um, religions have got a super important role to play, not just domestically but internationally. And they need to step forward more than they do. In, I say the same thing about, uh, about companies, about corporations. They also yes. control the lives, the behaviours, and even the attitudes of more people in more direct ways than elected politicians often do these days. And so these are the organisations that need to step up. But the problem here in the United States is the breakdown in religious authority. So it's really common for somebody, uh, for a Catholic, to say, but, you know, I, I, I don't trust the Pope. Uh, and when you're more Catholic than the Pope, what what hope what hope is there? Um, but I certainly think that an attempt to assert religious authority from the centre and to have a re religious authority behind dialogue c cannot hurt and has to provide leadership in the uh, in the right direction. And the the true faith or true you you know it's very interesting to see how particular leaders have a meaning beyond their community. I, I was thinking of the recent death of Desmond Tutu yes. and how very meaningful he was to people around the world. You know, similarly, you look at the reputation of the Dalai Lama, and there are many more people who pay attention to what he says than would adhere to his his religion. His, uh, his leadership extends beyond his the, the the boundaries of of his faith yes as well it might because um it's a thing that we need to remind ourselves of from time to time that the differences between the majority of the major religions are slight to say the least we're not very inventive we human beings and even when we try to come up with a different religion it's never very far away from the others and a, a visitor from Mars coming down on Earth would be surprised about the fuss we make over the tiny differences <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because they are really all based on the same pretty obvious handful of precepts, aren't they? And so that's why I think it's pretty easy for, for a, um, a Jew or a Muslim to look at somebody like Desmond Tutu or the Dalai Lama and say, truly, this is a good man because the characteristics of being holy are pretty much universal. It doesn't really matter which particular religion you belong to, unless you're a hater, of course, and if you're a hater, then you're going to hate them because you hate their religion. But then that gets us to the final issue here of whether we have a transnational struggle, not against extremism in one religion, but against extremism across 
across the board and whether there is a way of strengthening the center, strengthening ideas of moderation and dialogue and collectively alienating, setting aside extremes and and what would be the first step towards doing something like that, thinking that really extremism is the problem, not extremism expressed in a particular religion. Yes, absolutely right. But the, the, the challenge here, of course, is that as religions in, in history have experimented with moderating themselves, what they tend to find is that that leads um, to weaker, uh, weaker bonds uh, within their congregation. And as you moderate and as you move away from traditionalism and even fundamentalism, you, you mm-hmm. lose followers, you lose the glue, you lose the powerful emotions that bind your congregation together. And, and, and that's why it's such a perilous game for religious leaders to play when they try to modernize. And we've, we see it so clearly with the Catholic Church over the last three or four popes who've experimented so, so, so gingerly with loosening up some Catholic doctrine, which is, uh, which is very, very far from liberal. And what a risky game that is. Um, when you mm-hmm. have a reformer like, like Francis or like John Paul, um, the tiniest, tiniest step in the direction of reform and moderation and flexibility, they lose countless numbers of followers every time they do that. It's terribly, terribly hard for them. So, the next step. How? How? What should the? What's the next step forward? More, more of the kind of meetings that uh, Kazakhstan uh, initiated. Yes, more of all of that. But most particularly, I think it's um, much as I've as I've often said for, um, to countries who are embroiled in long conflicts and have come along and complained about how bad this is for their image. And my stock answer to them is always sit down and discuss this with your, uh, with, with your, your combatant, with your enemy, um, because the fact that you're in conflict with them means that you've got a common problem. And you need to figure out that common problem together. And I would say the same thing for religions. What we need to do is religious leaders all coming together around the world and saying we have a collective problem, which is, as you said a moment ago, Nick, not necessarily perceptions of our particular religion perceptions of religions altogether, and particularly mm. negative perceptions stemming from the fact that we're still so divided and often so conflictual. And so we've got a collective problem, and that means we need to find a collective solution. For all that I know, um, the heads of all the religions in the world are doing this as we speak. It would be nice to think. <laughs> if by some chance that had never occurred to them, I would warmly recommend it. <laughs> right. Well... <laughs> We can, uh, we can, we can live, live in hope. We can live in hope. That's all we have time for this week. I'm Nick Cole, still. And I'm Simon Anhold, still. <laughs>